this was all fun. <laughs> but that's over now. <laughs> We're getting serious because this is church. So imagine being chased by a bear. <laughs> what better way to start a, a teaching? Imagine being chased by a bear and, and you've only got two options to escape. Run is you can go run inside of a church or the other is to go climb a tree. What are you going to do now? Now, here's the thing. Conventional wisdom would tell us that well, you should run inside the church because bears can climb trees. But there's other people that would say you really don't want to run into a church with a bear behind. <laughs> I did that for you, Blake. It just goes downhill from here, everybody. So if you're visiting, it's I'm sorry. Here's the thing. Yeah. Here's the thing. I don't know. I don't know about all of that. But we're going to read a story today that seems to indicate that no matter what is behind, no matter what is chasing us, Jesus welcomes us into his presence. And we're going to be reading a story about a guy today who was up a tree. Uh, And it's a pretty famous story. It's like a favorite of children's stories, probably because he's described as as a, a character as who's small and kids can relate to that pretty easily being small themselves. We're going to find, though, that the message of this story is not just kid stuff. There are some important concepts for us as followers of Christ and as representatives of the church that are very important for us to take hold of and recognize and, and see. We're continuing our, our journey through the Gospel of Luke today. If you've got a Bible and you want to follow along, if you'll find your way to Luke chapter 19, please. We finished chapter 18 last week. And in, in, earlier in that chapter, in chapter 18, we read about a re- rich religious ruler who came to Jesus asking how he could gain eternal life. That is, the God-inspired good and whole life that extends on into eternity. And so Jesus suggested to this guy that he sell everything he have and give it to the poor and follow him. And of course, if you remember the story, that was too much for him. That was too far for him to go. And so he bailed out and, and, and left. He chose instead to trust his riches and his own personal piety. It left Jesus saying these words, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That is to participate. Remember, entering the kingdom, to participate in God's rule in this earth right now. So the people hearing that got concerned and they were looking around saying, well, who then can be saved? It was a kind of an intense moment. The story that we're going to read today is Luke's counterpoint to that story. The account is going to have another rich man involved, not a religious ruler, but actually a ruler of what people consider to be sinners at that time. We're going to be seeing the familiar themes that crop up in Luke all of the time of upending expectations about who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And Jesus's unnerving habit of accepting sinners, accepting the people that everybody else had already written off. Um, You'll see as we go. If you're there in Luke chapter 19, we're going to begin with verse 1. It says, Jesus entered Jericho. Remember, he was just outside of Jericho last week. He entered Jericho and made his way through town. 
there was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. Okay, this this is the opening. This is the preamble that sets the stage here. Uh, this, this story is actually unique to Luke's gospel. It doesn't appear in any of the other synoptics or in John. But it's another story that runs the risk of being overly romanticized if we're not careful. Because we are pretty familiar with this story if we've been around church at all. As a kid in Sunday school, we used to sing that song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. I can tell the Sunday school people because you're singing along with me. So it becomes this, you know, and it, it is. It's this heartwarming picture of a person who wouldn't let his own limitations keep him from being able to experience Jesus or getting to Jesus. And that is part of the story. That really is. But we're not going to focus on that quite as much today because there's more to it than that. First, we need to establish who this guy is. His name is Zacchaeus, which in, in Hebrew means pure or innocent, which we might consider either ironic or predictive. It's hard to tell uh, how, how we should see that. We're, we're told that he is one of the hated tax collectors. And of course, you know, not just because he was a tax collector. We'll get into that. But, you know, he's not even just a tax collector like we've seen. He's a chief tax collector, which means that, you know, he oversaw all the other tax collectors of the region, meaning that he was also in charge of taking uh, his cut from whatever they were gathering. So that goes into why his wealth was being accumulated. And again, we've met a lot of tax collectors in Luke's gospel So we probably remember the issue with these guys. First of all, they worked directly for Rome, the the occupiers of Israel, the people that were, uh, you know, putting Israel under their boot. That in itself was detestable for those who saw Israel as God's, you know, promised land and chosen people. So anything like that, collaboration with Rome was collaborating with enemies of Israel, which then would mean collaborating with enemies of God. So that was enough right there. But secondly, there is ample historical evidence that suggests that these guys were guilty of graft. They were using their position of authority and power to collect extra taxes for their own personal profit, for their own gain. So it's not unreasonable. I mean, when we let's put ourselves in the position of the people that are there in Jericho. It is not unreasonable that people didn't like tax collectors and didn't like this guy in particular. There, there was real pain behind their response to him. People lost land. They lost livelihoods. They, families would go hungry because of what tax collectors did, because of what these guys were doing. Luke also mentioned that this chief tax collector was rich. And everyone in Jericho knew where that wealth came from. I mean, that wasn't just some inheritance he got. It was their money. That was, that was their land that they saw represented there in his wealth. That was their savings that he had plundered. The food off of their table had been taken. The third notable thing has to do with stature. And this is where it gets intriguing to me. Because the way that this is worded in the Greek, it's actually hard to tell if it's Zacchaeus who's the one who's short and can't see over the crowd, or if it's Jesus who's so short that you can't see him uh, behind the crowd. 
I'm not kidding. This has actually been debated. It's debated to this day, you know, uh, trying to figure out, uh, you know, who, which it is, because as I said, it's fairly ambiguous in the Greek. Uh, for me, so as not to ruin that nice kid song, that children's church song, we're going to go with him being short, with Zacchaeus being <laughs> the short one. But no matter what his stature was, we know he wanted to see Jesus. And we aren't told why he wanted to see Jesus either. Like we can assume, just like the, the blind man from last week, we can assume that he's heard stories about Jesus, wants to be able to you know, see what the crowd is gathering all about. But it may be more, in fact, we'll get that impression that it's more than that. What the story makes very plain is that Zacchaeus was being kept at a distance from Jesus by the crowds who were following Jesus. He had been a person who, you know, if he had been a person whom the community respected, if he had been somebody in town that everybody enjoyed and looked up to, when he came up close to the crowd, you better believe they would have parted and made way. Oh, hey, here's Zacchaeus. Here, make room. Let him get through here. But, but that wasn't the case. Because of who he was in their view, because he was the bad guy, because he was the enemy, the, the one trying to ruin things for God's people, well, they made no allowance for him whatsoever. The people following Jesus were blocking Zacchaeus's view of Jesus. And that's a problem. This has been an ongoing problem, I would say, since this story was told. This is an ongoing issue that we, as followers of Jesus, have to face and wrangle with squarely. Certainly, we can appreciate Zacchaeus' determination to actually do the undignified thing of climbing a tree to get a glimpse of Jesus. But the real challenge to us in this, in this story is this picture of an unaccommodating crowd around Jesus. And I think it's a reminder to us as the church that enabling people to see Jesus is our highest priority. As his followers, as the church in this world, enabling, facilitating people's view of Jesus. That's the supreme thing. This, I think, has been the heartbreaking development in the evangelical church for many years. This sense that first we saw of withdrawing from the world around us. And obviously there were motives behind that. We want to remain pure and righteous and all of these things. But it developed into something else. It developed into this point of being literally hostile, this sense of embattlement against the forces that are perceived as ruining things for God's people, the forces at work that are trying to keep us down and, and mess with our convictions. And I get where it comes from. I'm not saying that happened in a vacuum, just like I get why the people behaved the way they did with Zacchaeus, but it doesn't make it right. And it's certainly not in harmony with Jesus's MO, with how it is that he carried himself and what it is that he did. And listen, it's becoming a tired phrase, but it's still more true than it should be that the modern evangelical church is known more for what it's against than it really is about the person of Jesus. So what are the things? Think of us like corporately as a church. What are the things that we rally to or promote as a cause that might obscure Jesus in the view of those who might want to catch a glimpse of him? 
Maybe when we focus on culture wars or political parties and stances. Maybe, maybe like when a church, an entire church gathering erupts in a chant of let's go Brandon, which I witnessed to my horror on a video from some large mega church. I have to wonder how those who voted for Biden are able to see Jesus through that. And this sort of behavior is, is in the church is problematic no matter who is president. So don't bog down on that part. It's not about the parties or the policies. This would have been true with the last president or this president. It's about who it is that we're supposed to be representing. Our job is not to do anything but to point to Jesus. Our job isn't to demand that the people of this world reflect standards that they may not even know about. Our calling isn't to inflict punishment on those who made made it a little uncomfortable for us to have our convictions. Paul described us as ambassadors for Christ in 2 Corinthians 5, meaning our singular duty is to get people in closer proximity to Jesus, and that means we will be flexible on every other issue. Man, it's so quiet. Here's the thing. I got tons of opinions. I mean, I really do. I got it. I got tons of opinions on a lot of different issues from politics to culture to all kinds of stuff. But as an ambassador, as an ambassador, I am called to be diplomatic. I'm required to lay my opinions aside if they might obscure someone else's view of Jesus, if my opinion actually suddenly takes center stage and they can't see beyond that. Because listen, here's the reason my opinions should be dispensable. is because my opinions can't save anyone. In fact, they really can't even help anyone. <laughs> all they do is add to the raging noise all around me. Okay, great. So Rom says I can't have any opinions anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, that's just his opinion. Okay, so I'm not saying that. So like I'm telling you, I've got opinions. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that when it comes to what it is that we reflect or rather project into this world about our faith, it must be Jesus. It must be Jesus. Let me read you what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. For I decided that while I was with you, the people of Corinth, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. That didn't mean that Paul didn't have any opinions or preferences. Didn't mean that Paul didn't pay attention to what the weather was or, you know, look and see who the Caesar is at the moment. But he determined to represent who Jesus is above any other interest he might have had. And I truly believe if we want to be a faithful church, if we want to reclaim that place of faithfulness as the church in our present culture, we need to follow Paul's example on this. Okay, so Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but everybody is obscuring his views. So to his credit, he gets creative and he looks for an alternative vantage point. In other words, He's got to do something radical that enables him to overlook the people who are obscuring his view of Jesus. And man, for that, you got to give him a lot of credit. That's, that's really cool. 
And, and honestly, that's a whole uh, teaching in and of itself when we don't have time for. But it got me to thinking that, you know, you think about the things that are happening within our culture, the stuff that, you know, we constantly want to sound the doomsday alarm over or, or whatever. And, and, you know, people have been leaving the church here in the United States in droves. I don't know if you're aware of that, but, but they are. The, the, right now, the fastest growing classification of people in our, in our present society is, uh, when it comes to religion, is the nuns. I don't mean N-U-N-S, I mean N-O-N-E-S, nuns. Those who claim no religious affiliation whatsoever. And yet, the research, the data seems to indicate that they've not given up spirituality. And so I think that it's very possible that maybe they're just, maybe they're just looking for a tree to climb. Maybe, maybe it's not a bad thing what we see happening here. Uh, maybe it's a lesson to us as we're looking at that to maybe consider how it is that we might be needing to part, part just a little bit, to be flexible enough to let somebody through, to get a glimpse of the one who saved us and has rescued us. So, okay, so, Rob, you're saying we're supposed to represent Jesus. Okay, so what is, you know, who is Jesus? I mean, what do you mean? What is, what is that supposed to be? What is Jesus about? What are we supposed to represent then? Okay, I'm glad you brought it up. Let's keep reading. Verse, verse 5. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and, Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people (laughs) were displeased. He's going to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Okay, this takes us right back to chapter 15. If you recall, the religious leaders were all grumbling for this very reason, because Jesus is hanging out with the wrong people, eating with people that, you know, it's just this unsettling practice that Jesus had of just hanging out and chumming it up with people that they had already shunned because they weren't good enough. They were in a sinful state. But again, this is like a rhythmic drumbeat in Luke's gospel over and over again. Jesus reaches out to those who are outcasts. He looks right up at Zacchaeus and he sees him in this unorthodox perch and he expresses his acceptance of him by inviting himself over to his home which i think is kind of cool too he even calls him by name and then we're left to wonder about that like did he know him did he did he like have a prior knowledge of this guy in jericho that maybe he had a reputation he's the chief tax collector maybe people knew who the the authorities were i I don't know or maybe this is just revealing to us how God knows all of us very personally and exactly the state that we're in, right where we are. Either way, even though it wasn't the popular move, Jesus reveals this primary truth that God's grace is accessible to anyone who wants it. Anyone. And this is the fundamental way in which Jesus reveals the heart of God to us. If we want to know who God is, we look at Jesus. If we want to know what God is up to, we look at what Jesus did and what Jesus said. And nothing reflects this heart of God more accurately than this revelation of grace that Jesus provides to us. His mercy, God's mercy on those who seek him. And it's important to recognize when this gracious acceptance occurs 
Because again, this is one of these things that we as Christians, and it just has to do with familiarity. It's not like I'm, I'm certainly, I'm not trying to say, oh, you know, Christians, we never get this right. I mean, hey, Christians, we never get this right. It's true. But I don't mean that as an insult. It's just an acknowledgement that we are frail in, in light of all of this. We don't do this well. But this is one of those things that we tend to get kind of mixed up in our minds. We keep wanting to clean fish before they're caught. We keep wanting to straighten things out before anybody actually has come in to, to, the, to the party that God's throwing. And, and this is the thing before Zacchaeus has done anything, good or bad, before we hear him say a single word while he's just sitting on a tree branch like some crazy bird, Jesus looks up to him and, and loves him. All he had to do was want to see Jesus and Jesus is right there looking for him. Man, what a picture. It's just something that we always have to remember for ourselves and for those that we interact with uh, around us. There is nothing. Yeah, right. Amen. There is nothing that precludes us from receiving God's loving grace. Nothing. Doesn't matter what bear is behind or behind this bear. Doesn't matter. It really does not matter. Not to Jesus anyway. God knows us and God loves us. And that's just remarkable. The one who knows me best loves me most. How can that possibly be? How can that be? And yet that's the reality that's revealed. This is the startling revelation of God's heart that Jesus brings to us. Jesus loved Zacchaeus even though he was considered the worst sinner in town. And that means that when you and I are at our sinful worst, Jesus continues to love us also. It never diminishes. It never stops. That truth is at the heart of the story. That truth is at the heart of the gospel. The good news that God intends to set all things right. And he doesn't care about where we've been. All he cares about is bringing us into himself so that he can show us where we're going. But we'll see that that quality of love, that love that Jesus reveals to Zacchaeus, that love that Jesus reveals to us, man, the quality of that love can change a person. And honestly, that's the heart of real change. Let's keep reading verses 8 to 10. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. Lord, and if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. And that's where we'll stop today. But this is the amazing thing about this story to me. In verse 8, Zacchaeus makes this sudden commitment to provide restitution to all of those that he's taken advantage of in the community. And he even goes beyond what the law of Moses would have required in that. In the law of Moses, in Leviticus chapter 6, if somebody defrauds somebody else, they have to pay that same amount back plus 20%. That's what the law required. But here Zacchaeus is offering four times the amount that he's taken uh, as restitution. Now in the Greek, he makes this declaration in the present tense. 
and that's been kind of intriguing. Now, some have interpreted that to mean that this was his practice all along, that this is his defense to Jesus saying, I've always been doing this. And that would be an interesting lesson about prejudices and the way that the crowd had perceived him. But I, but I don't think it answers all of the all of the specifics of this story if we assume that. Because there is something behind. There's only, there's only one way that his reputation as a sinner, as one who's still part of that Roman Empire tax-collecting cabal, there's, there's only one way that that would have remained intact, and that is if he was continuing in that practice. So I still think that what this is, this present tense behind this, I think he, it's, he, he's settling it in his heart right at that moment, here and now. I give half my wealth to the poor. And, and we mentioned the rich man from chapter 18, whom Jesus told to go and sell all of his possessions. And that was too much for him. But here Zacchaeus does something akin to this, but it's only half his possessions. And Jesus seems okay with it. But if also we add to that the repayment of four times what he's taken in fraud, which we can assume that's a lot of people, we would think that's going to leave him pretty severely... Um, diminished in his resources after this. It's going to hurt. It's going to make an impact on, on his own life. And the main thing is he did this without Jesus commanding anything from him. Like Jesus told the one guy, he's going to sell everything you have, give it to the poor. And I was like, oh, whoa, no, no, no. Here Jesus doesn't say, in fact, Zacchaeus does this without Jesus actually saying a word at this point, apart from just acknowledging, calling him by name and inviting himself over to his house. It appears that was all that was needed for him. It was this gracious, accepting love that seems to have transformed Zacchaeus and transformed how it is that he was behaving. And I think it reminds us that God's grace is what rewires our hearts and reforms our actions. Reforms, reforms them and how it is that we live and behave and interact. This is why it's so important for us to get people in closer proximity to Jesus because all it takes is for someone to get close to that grace and changes begin to happen. All we have to do is get them close to Jesus. It's not a matter of trying to straighten somebody out which most of the time means for us to win an argument with somebody to prove that I'm right and you were wrong all along. It's not about that. It's never about that. It's about getting people close to Jesus because in the presence of Jesus, foundational, elemental things begin transforming and changing in our lives. It's not going to happen through demands for conformity from us as the church or through the, the, the pressures of peers within a church culture. It's only going to be through the transforming power of God's grace and love for us. The changed actions have to proceed from a changed heart. Otherwise, we don't have real righteousness at that point. Jesus then says that this is a picture of salvation of deliverance. That's what salvation means. Remember, deliverance, the end of exile from God. This is a picture of that. This is revealing Zacchaeus' status as a child of Abraham. In other words, one of God's children. 
It's not his last name that's going to make the difference. It's not his biological connection to his ancestor, but living in a way that reveals that his heart is connected to God. He's, in other words, showing off the family resemblance because it's just coming out of him because of who he has become. And that's the thing that we always have to remember. Morally good behavior cannot produce salvation, but salvation will produce a reformation in the way that we live. Salvation will produce a change in us into how we choose and interact with our fellow human being. God intends to set all things right. That's the gospel message. Beginning with our hearts and then moving outward from there to change the way we think and act and interact to a change that one day is going to affect the whole world. God will set it all right when Jesus returns and sets it all right. You know, over the course of nearly 30 years now uh, of teaching, I have been challenged many times about uh, my emphasis on God's grace. For me, it, it's, all, it's all part and parcel with an experience that I had with him, a revelation of his grace that I've never been able to get over to this day. I've taken comfort over the years from like the old English preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones who said that you're... Unless you're accused of preaching lawlessness, you're really not preaching grace the way Paul did. And if he's right on that, and I take some comfort in that, then maybe I'm okay. I received an email once from someone who was taking issue with this emphasis on grace. Because, I mean, if you've been around here at all, you've heard it come up. Has anybody ever heard it come up once or twice? And so the person wrote to me and says, you're not balanced on this. You really need to be more balanced. You really need to be addressing sins more regularly and more, you know, more intensely. And I've had this conversation a lot with people over the years. So part of my response in this email was I just said, well, you know, I I hear you. I understand what you're saying. Let's talk about it. What sins are you committing that you feel like we need to talk about (laughs) and discuss and take before the Lord? And uh, I never did get a reply (laughs) because I don't think that's what they wanted to talk about because any time that we are upset about this and we want sin to be addressed, we're never talking about our sin. We're always talking about the sin of those who are offensive to us, the sins of others. And I'm telling you from experience, I'm not talking off the top of my head. I'm telling you from experience, the answer to sin in our lives is not more restrictive demands or scolding threats from someone like me. I've lived with those demands in my formative years as a Christian. Those demands hung like the sword of Damocles over my head. Ever and always, I I knew that sin was present and That sense of my failure in that was always present and it did not produce real righteousness in me. Just an ever-growing sense of foreboding condemnation. That's what I lived with ever and always. It wasn't until I brushed against, just minimally brushed against the abyss of his grace that everything changed for me, everything. His relentless love for me is what compels me in my life. 
in the choices that I make, in the way that I interact with my fellow human being. His love for me makes me want to be a better man. I want to be that person that I can be. Not because I'm afraid, but because I love the one who has loved me so. And according to the story of Zacchaeus, that love is how the lost get found. That love is how exile is ended and we're brought back in to relationship with God. That grace is what brings us lost ones home. So let's let's receive that love that God has for us. Let's really accept and believe the reality of it. Because from that place of being loved, we can extend that love to others. From that place of being loved, we can take the risk of loving others, of helping people get close to Jesus, regardless of what bear may be chasing them. And from that place of being loved, I'm telling you, we can overcome any sin that this broken world may throw our way. We can overcome because we are loved by God. We are loved by God and that love will lead us home if we'll believe it. Do you believe it? Who are you? Let's say that with conviction. When I ask you who you are, I want you to tell me you are loved by God. Who are you? Oh, if you'll believe that, you'll change the world. Father, we just thank you so much for your word and what it reveals to us. And we ask you, Lord, to to impress this deep into our hearts and our minds. Lord, I just pray for every person here. Give us, each of us, that revelation of this amazing love that you represent into this world. Lord, the easy path is the path of judgment. The easy path is the path of condemnation, of excruciating laws that none of us would ever be able to to attend to well, but at least, man, we'd have a nice structure. It is the easy path in terms of being able to define who's in or who's out. But here, Lord, here, in this tumbling freefall of your grace, here is where real growth takes place. So draw that out of us, Lord. Draw draw those deep things out of our heart by your love for us. Let it change our lives. Let addictions fall by the wayside. Let hatreds and bitternesses evaporate into the mist of your amazing love. Let all the struggles with lust and anger and greed, let all of that begin to dissipate in light of the wholeness that we receive from you. Because the one who made all of this knows us, knows us so well inside and out, and yet loves us without reserve.